Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people we've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity, and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda, and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you, and hopefully not challenge your attention span. No justice, no peace. Chanted during the Black Lives Matter protest that swept across the globe following the brutal murder of George Floyd by white police officers in Minneapolis. These words define much of the anger felt by African Americans today. They symbolize an urgency, a demand for change, and an expression of outrage for the blaring racial gap between white and black Americans. From access to healthcare to educational attainment, all the way through to unjust police killings. The statistics are staggering. Although African Americans make up less than 14% of the population, since 2015 they have accounted for almost 24% of over 6,000 fatal shootings by the police. They are 20% more likely to be pulled over in traffic stops and are imprisoned at five times the rate of white Americans. But even before the 2020 Black Lives Matter demonstrations, before the 2015 Maryland protests after the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody, and before the 2014 Missouri protests following the shooting of Michael Brown, there were the Los Angeles 1992 riots after the acquittal of police officers for beating up Rodney King. And even before that, there were the 1965 Watts riots, which occurred just days after the Voting Rights Act and only a year after the signing of the Civil Rights Act. Centuries of suppressed anger over systemic racism, over housing discrimination, over income disparities, and over police harassment, finally boiled with the civil rights movement. Yet, 60 years later, discrimination against African Americans still remains, and the question as to where to go from here carries on unresolved. In today's episode, we speak to Breon Wells, the founder of the Daniel Initiative and previous presidential aide to former President Barack Obama. He talks about his work, what it means to be an African-American man in America today, and the changes he would like to see moving forward. This discussion is supplemented by the academic insight of Molly Ellenberg, 
a research fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Violent Extremism on how the ideology of extremism and white supremacy function today. So I'm joined now by Molly Ellenberg. Hi, Molly. Hi. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining me, and thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I guess first of all, if we can kind of um, begin, if you could tell me a little bit about your academic background and your current research uh, at the International Center for the Study of uh, Violent Extremism. Yeah. So my background is in forensic psychology. Um, I got my bachelor's in clinical psychology. I studied juvenile delinquency, and then I did my master's in forensic psychology. And because I was living in DC um, and I wanted to study uh, group related violence, I got into studying terrorism, studying violent extremism. So I've been working at the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism since 2019. And I'm also a PhD student at the University of Maryland in social psychology. I study still extremism as well as some other um, kind of broader psychological concepts related to it. Um, but at ICSVE, I am the data person. So my boss, Ann Speckard, interviews terrorists. She's interviewed 273 ISIS members, um, 16 members of Al-Shabaab, and then recently started interviewing um, white supremacists in 2020. So she has 50 interviews with white supremacists, current and former members of these groups. Um, and my job is to take the interviews and code them on hundreds of variables related to different themes that arise during the interviews. So their vulnerabilities growing up, their motivations, their influences, um, their roles and experiences in their groups, and then also sources of disillusionment if they've if they've left their groups or even if they haven't. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I'll, I'll, I'll buy it mildly depressing. Um, speaking to all of those um, people, or, or, or as you say, coding and, and analyzing all, all those interviews. And I'm, I'm kind of curious because obviously, you know, seeing or listening or, or engaging with, with this many people from a, from a variety of different um, extremist paths that have gone down various extremist paths. If you had to pick one underlying narrative that you could find that led these people to um, the, these various extremist beliefs, um, what would you say it'd be? I would say the underlying kind of theme throughout is the quest for significance. And I can explain what that is, but I just want to clarify that, you know, it's not the quest for significance alone. Um, Dr. Speckard has this, you know, lethal cocktail of terrorism that she calls it, where, you know, you have to have the individual needs and vulnerabilities, but also the group, the ideology, the social support for it. But what the quest for significance is, is the kind of fundamental universal human need to matter, to feel like you belong, to feel like you have a purpose in life, meaning, dignity. And all of these people, when they join their groups, were looking for that in some way or another, whether they consciously acknowledge that or not. And lots of the white supremacist interviewees in particular did say they were looking for belonging, they were looking for acceptance, they were looking for meaning in life, and that's why they joined. 
Mm-hmm. Which actually isn't, you know, it, it is and isn't surprising if you see if you see what I mean. In the sense that, you know, we all seek significance and belonging in one form or another. I mean, that's that's why, you know, patriotism works, or you know, supporting a team, or or being a part of a religion. It's almost like we all want to feel a part of something. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. We all want to feel a part of something. And it's why we, you know, choose jobs that feel rewarding. It's not just, you know, a sense of belonging in a community, but it's also kind of how we define ourselves individually. And all of these people were missing that. Mm-hmm. And, and in regards to this quest of significance, because, you know, there is also the element of of, of violence in, in these groups, you know, like it's one thing holding or, or feeling a part of these um, extremist groups, um, say a white supremacist group, for example. Um, but then there's almost that additional step of actually committing a violent act for, for, for said ideology. Um, would you say it's just this question of significance that kind of leaves those people there or, or, or is there something else? Because they don't all, take part in acts of violence um yeah so what's that additional kind of element i guess that uh or, or is there kind of an underlying narrative um of the people that did commit those acts of violence that kind of almost pushes them further in a way yeah so the narrative there is the key word because there has to be a violence justifying narrative that says if you seek significance this is how you can get it. Um, You can get it by committing an act of violence in the name of our group or in pursuit of the group's goal. And so there are lots of people in lots of kind of more insidious, in my opinion, violent extremist groups that aren't, you know, we still call them violent extremists because their ideologies are still violent, but they are much more focused on running for office, on intimidating people, you know, spreading propaganda, things like that. And so their groups don't reward violence because that might set back their um, progress. For instance, you know, if in their opinion, God forbid, a mass shooting led to gun control, then that's not helpful for their group at all. Mm -hmm. So violence is less respected. But in other groups, um, groups that have an accelerationist ideology whose goal is to bring about the social collapse of the government, then violence is absolutely respected. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, once you get you know, to that violence-justifying ideology, it also depends on the person individually, what they have to lose. Um, leaders in groups are less likely to commit acts of violence themselves because they see their value to the group as broader than just one act of violence that could get them killed or put in prison. Similarly, you know, people with more attachments to the outside world, families, kids, jobs are less likely to to do that violence as well. Mm-hmm. So would it be fair to say then that um, once you get past this, this quest of significance, which initially brings you into the group, the, the almost profile of someone that would then be likely to to potentially commit this act of violence is someone who is um who has very little to lose limited or no stake in society potentially no job um and therefore just 
doesn't have much to say goodbye to almost. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to say. And there are some that are maybe, you know, going to commit a crime that will allow them to be in prison for a shorter while of time. But people who are committing these vast, you know, huge mass shootings are overwhelmingly young, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly unattached to the rest of their community. And just moving on from this, um, if I may, how do you think America's history of um, slavery and, and the civil rights movement um, has affected the way race is perceived in, in, in the United States today? Well, race underlies everything in the U.S. I don't think it's super controversial anymore to say that, um, that racism is built into our history and it's built into our current laws that are still on the books. And so equal rights or the move toward equal rights is still very much ongoing. And people of color, Black people in particular, recognize that, but lots of white people don't, which I think is where this sense of relative deprivation comes in, is that with the civil rights movement and the laws that came out of that, a lot of people felt that racism had ended. And just as they felt threatened when enslaved people were emancipated and suddenly they, you know, started the KKK and things like that, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a growth again of white supremacist movements in the 70s in response to the feeling that white people were losing their sense of power. And I think we see that again now with the Black Lives Matter movement essentially being a, another civil rights movement that is saying, hey, we still are not treated the same. And white people, you know, not all white people, but plenty of white people seeing that as a threat to their um, place in society, which they view as their rightful place, mm -hmm. as a place that was built by and for white men. And so any hint that there might be more equal representation is seen as a threat. It is through the ideology of self-preservation that racism continues to grip and rot the core of our democracies. The idea that racism is simply attempting to cause harm to non-whites is a fallacy. The days of mass lynching mobs and Ku Klux Klan rallies may be behind us. However, willful ignorance and the decision to deny the undeniable difference in treatment based on your skin color is still racism. A fact that we in the white community need to accept, regardless of how uncomfortable that makes us. The overabundance of information and misinformation online, along with our privilege to never see the nastiest face of society, means we can choose to turn off a video of a white police officer pinning his knee down on an African-American man for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Put simply, willful ignorance is racism. I'm joined now by Brion Wells, the founder of the Daniel Initiative. Hi, Brion. Hey, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Thanks for uh, for, for joining me. 
I've got to ask, first of all, um, why the Daniel Initiative? Why Daniel the name? Yeah, so, you know, my faith is very important to me. Um, and I believe that uh, everyone, whether they believe in any, you know, sort of particular faith or the right to no belief at all, uh, that we should live from our core convictions. Um, and so as a person of faith, the story, the narrative of Daniel in the Bible, you know, really helps from a biblical context, Daniel in the lion's den, right, that most people associated with. Um, when you pare it down, he was a counselor to kings and governments, and uh, his word could be trusted, and he was a strategist, and, you know, uh, his counsel really had long effects. And so that's what we do at the Daniel Initiative, right? We give uh, we provide government relations, strategic communications, and social impact services. Um, and our hope is that the advice and counsel that we give, uh, we literally build strategies and hope that our counsel will go uh, in the long term. Amazing, amazing. No, I, I like I like that having that um having a background to the name, especially so right. when it's biblical. It's uh, when you're making biblical change, you got a biblical name, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so tell me about your a little bit about your background and kind of career journey because you've had a, an incredible career and that, how did it end up to to going into um, essentially consulting lobbying work today? Yeah, so I you know started out um, I, I went to undergrad at Messiah College um, in in a little little space called Grantham Universe or Grantham uh, Pennsylvania and. Uh, at that time, I double majored actually in political science um, and biology pre-med, so pre-law and pre-med. Could not figure out what I wanted to do. I would not suggest that anyone do that, but I had the that's a hell of a, that's mind, a hell of a right? <laughs> had the mind of a, a lawyer, but the heart of a doctor. Um, and so, you know, organic chemistry one and two, which we have to take in in the U.S persuaded me that I'd rather do public policy instead of uh, continue to stay in and try to be a neurosurgeon. Um, and so I think, you know, as soon as I graduated, um, going into uh, Capitol Hill, uh, I worked for a congressman um, on Capitol Hill, working on education and healthcare and tax legislation. Um, and then went and moved on to work on the Senate side in, in U.S. Congress, um, again, for another member dealing with uh, foreign affairs uh, and education, and then spent six years on the Senate Armed Service Committee. Uh, that is the space that deals with our national security, uh, that deals with, you know, our defense and, and the amount of monies and things that's tied to that. Um, and I think that that experience right there shifted me from politics which is, you know, good at politics, which is like appetite and, you know, making sure that a member or a person continues to look good to be able to stay in their job to a policy space that's dealing with what is the actual policy subject matter. Um, and for me, dealing in national security in the U.S. and knowing that there has been um, systemic and institutionalized racism, right? And, and we've had slavery and quite a journey in the United States as we're dealing with this country, it was important to have a consistent say and stake in the policy realm. Um, had the ability, once I started the Daniel Initiative, um, that actually the Obama for America, Obama re-election campaign was my uh, second client. Um, and then we were able to, you know, transition and, and spend some time 
Um, I was able in the administration and then came out to continue doing this work. Uh, the work that we do at the Daniel Initiative is making sure that we achieve equity in the policy space. Um, and we would define equity as equal access to power. So it's making sure that more and more directly impacted persons uh, are in those governmental spaces, in, in Congress, those policy spaces, helping to navigate and make change for themselves and their communities. And you you, you mentioned um, uh, the idea of, you know, um, the the equal access to power and, and, and then the idea of equity. Um, and... Obviously, you know, there's there's been a, a quite a massive discussion about um, racial equality and 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 these kind of things in 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 I'd say recent years. Although this conversation is is by no means new, I'd say um, people may have heard about it more regularly now, but it's definitely not new. Um, so, what would you say is the difference between the idea of kind of equality and equity? Would you say? Yeah, <clears throat> I would say that you know, equality is about in some ways. Uh, having this this right to exist right and and get some of these same fundamental rights that other people have um equity on the other hand is about power um equity is about making sure that everyone has that access to that power that ability to affect change um in their own communities in their own spaces um and i think that we see in part or at least as i you know, uh, one of the things I always think about and, and, and even sometimes talk about is the fact that the civil rights movement in the United States of 19, you know, uh, we had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, what Martin Luther King Jr. and countless others who were part of that civil rights movement were fighting for was equality, to be looked at as equal in the eyes of the law. But today we are still fighting these inequities and our fight is, for, is, is fighting for equity itself, to have the seat at the table, right? To make sure that when we're talking about uh, from president to congressional members, to those who are policy people at the highest levels, like chiefs of staffs and communications directors that, you know, like we bring to private sector, it's not enough for me to be uh, uh, just one of the staff in you know Amazon, um, it would help if I had some green light power by being a senior vice president or even the founder or owner, the president of the company. Um, that is equity, the ability to change the system um, and, and be able to make sure that it, everyone has that access equally to power. Mm -hmm. Those would be the differences. And I would say that the fight we have before us as we look at from Black Lives Matter to you know, um, uh, even a lot of the environmental justice implications, all the topics, it's about having our seat at the table to be able to affect that change in ways that are meaningful for us. That's equity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And would it be fair to say, for example, I mean, using, um, uh, you know, former President Barack Obama as, as, as an example, you know, having someone at the, the head of the table, you know, having the kind of the highest um, position um isn't really going to necessarily change anything because you think about how right. big the united states government is for for example just as just as one institution you could take any um you know him being there of course is great but at the same time um is that going to make massive change 
arguably not really and he was always put on a pedestal where we're like oh well you know there, there's a there's, there's an african-american a black person in in in, in the seat of, of of the president well that that isn't the end of that of this conversation because like you say when you're talking about equity if you consider how big that institution is if you consider how many positions um, are needed to be filled to actually make genuine change one position even if it's at the head of the table necessarily isn't gonna be enough in a democratic institution to actually bring about that that equity so although you may have equality in the sense that anybody from any race can technically run and obama proves could could win um that doesn't affect the 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 um in terms of in terms of equity and, and equal access to power yeah, I and I often sometimes with our, our clients, because we do racial equity training at the Danish, we do a whole host of, of, of what we now call DEI work, right? Um, and one of the ways I explain it to our, our clients as we're walking them through this, uh, sometimes we sit in a literal conference room and I say, you know, everyone, you know, that that is not a white, wealthy, land-owning man. And for, for the purposes of today, all white men will be wealthy, right? For, for this day economically, uh, then get up from the table and stand off, you know, on the wall. And so everybody literally, except for these white men are sitting at the table. The reason I walked them through this is because in the United States, this was the case, right? White, wealthy, landowning men, um, Protestant, and then we dropped that at, at the 17th century, had the right to vote, had access to the ballot box. So that means every system that we see even today was built in the furtherance of those men. So then I say, okay, now let's put a black woman, shall we say, at the table. We'll call her uh, uh, Danielle. And we put Danielle at the head of the table. That's great by diversity space, because the point I make to them is, if this is America, the room is America, the table is the space of power. We've never had a diversity problem in this in the United States, right, by face, in the sense of they've always been in existence, but everyone hasn't had equal access to power. But when we put Danielle, the Black woman, at the head of this table, we expect her to produce, like and with the results of a white, wealthy, landowning man, minus the privilege, minus the resources, minus any of the things. So we have her sitting at a table that was not built for her. And when then it doesn't pan out because there was not the inherent support system that envisioned her, society says that's why black women and that's why black people or that's why insert whatever otherism here should not be leading at the table. So equity means let's all dismantle this current table and build a table together where everyone has equal access to power. And so to your point, yes, it was not enough for Barack Obama, a black man, to be at the helm of the presidency as if that in and of itself was going to uh, save us and cure us from centuries of systemic and institutionalized, racialized decision-making mm -hmm. that yep. we enshrined in some cases, even in policy, right? It wasn't just uh, people with pitchforks and, and lynching happening of physical violence. It was met with entrenched in political and policy narratives and that's why we use the term structural racism yeah. i mean the irony is that it was just pitchforks and so forth first of all it wouldn't have gone on for that long and it you know it certainly wouldn't be as much of an issue as it is today and yep. and and 100 and you can see this with um barack obama's presidency where no matter 
you know, even if he was able to push through kind of superhuman levels of legislation and whatnot, um, he, he was on such a pedestal because the expectation was so high that it was just never, never going to amount to 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 what people expected. That's right. That's right. And, and I think, you know, to that end, there's also a level which um, I know it's a mutual intersection of the work that, you know, you all do a shout out UK that we do at the Daniel Initiative is this thing of making sure that there is access to the ballot box, that civic engagement matters mm -hmm. in part so that the more you interact with the system, the better you understand which facets of that system need to be changed or which facets of that system need to be tweaked. Because in the United States, we put a lot of pressure, not that it doesn't need to be an accountability, you know, it should be, but we put a lot of it in the presidency, but the constitution outlines that the power of the purse resides in Congress. The, the ability to write legislation resides in that 535 members of Congress, right? Um, and, and, and folks outside the U.S. could take that same construct somewhat and think about, you know, the legislative branch is often the one that has the weight of power that is developing these policies, that is the one that's imagining these systems of what can be that touch these lives. And so, the more that one engages civically, the better they're able to navigate that space, right? And say, wait a minute, Barack Obama was never going to be able to cure all of this. How am I in my strategy holding accountable the 535 members of Congress or the parliamentarians, right, that are there, the members of parliament, to make sure that they are reflecting as best as possible this new world that we would like to imagine? And and, and on that, if I may um, move on slightly around... Um racism in america because we were talking on for, for this podcast um to a a academic um and she was talking about the 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 way racism has kind of like evolved um in 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 times in the sense of what kind of academic circles talk about you know traditional forms and you know you can think of i don't know the kkk burning things and you know driving around beating people up etc they're kind of like what you'd associate as kind of visually um you know, hate, hate acts, right? Or, or, um, uh, physical acts of actual racial violence to what you're saying kind of in the modern day, more around the kind of like willful ignorance or, or, or choose to be like, well, actually the, the conversation is dead. It's been done. Equality has been achieved. Why are we still talking about it? It's kind of like denial more than in general, I'm talking about, obviously there are pockets mm -hmm. of incredibly yeah. aggressive, um, far right and uh, far right and um, white supremacists of course um, but in terms of kind of the general sentiment seems to be more around kind of willful ignorance and I was wondering in, in, in your view what the difference is between um, racism and, and, and ignorance and the reason why I say this is because when I was talking to her it it kind of occurred to me that you know some of these people are, are willfully ignorant or choosing to be ignorant um, because the point was made that you know we, we live in a world where all you got to do is go on any social media platform and you will see, um, you know, statistics around how, you know, how often a black person gets stopped in the UK by police compared to a white person, for instance. These, these are statistical facts. Or in the US, you will see videos, biographic videos of police beating, sometimes killing black, black unarmed men, often without any priors or whatever. Like these are these are things that you can very easily come across and see. Um, but then on the flip side, um, you know, 
I've been to places in the UK, and I'm sure they exist in the US, where there's this kind of like almost like desert of information where they get their information from certain specific sources. They rarely leave their communities, often don't have passports. So it kind of gets me wondering how much of us are on, are in our own bubble saying, well, you're just willful ignorant and how much of it is actual genuine ignorance because of the fact they live in a complete information desert and what they think is the world is actually a completely warped, very narrow view of the world. Um, but I wonder how much of that is 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 true, or if it's if it's kind of too hard to tell. Yeah. So um, I'll say this: there is a difference between racism and you know overt racism, mm-hmm. shall we call it, um, and ignorance. Just like there's a difference between the overt sexism and ignorance. Um, the issue is, first of all, before I, I delve into this, that ignorance doesn't mean that you have not had a hand whether unintentionally or unintentionally in adding to the weight the burden and the effect of racism sexism right of course um and so in part you know we have yes these folks that are overtly racist in society they hold animus in their hearts uh against someone because of the color of their skin they are seeking their oppression they are trying to make sure that their particular race wins at all cost uh you know that's that's white <laughs> white folks right mm-hmm. um i think that uh or not i think i know that ignorance then is sometimes you haven't interacted in in a way interacted in a space where you've been forced to think about these inequities um and and sometimes the question is what do you do in those moments and here's where the ignorance starts to turn sometimes into willful ignorance Mm -hmm. it's when you are faced in this information age and yes We do. You're correct, Mateo. There are digital deserts that exist across the globe. You know, I believe that sometimes the estimates is about two billion people are disconnected across the globe from the Internet. Um, But the reality of it is that a vast majority of people do have access to some sort of information uh, and in this space. And it's always the battle of when someone else's narrative is not comfortable for what I would prefer to stay in. Mm. That's when it shifts from ignorance that still was harmful in adding to racism turns into willful ignorance. Um, And in fact, what we have in societies across the globe and in governments across the globe is really sometimes a lack of courage. It's not that the data and the science doesn't, you know, isn't there. It's that the data and the science doesn't comport with the ideology of self-preservation. And self-preservation is one heck of a drug that we, you know, continue to use as the strongest litmus test. And it doesn't need any sort of uh, validation, credibility, grounding in science other than the fact of whatever is going to keep me in my primacy position is all I need. Yeah. 
And so, you know, that's, that is, that is, uh, that's the current state that we've always been in. And in fact, I think about, I think it's interesting that the conversation was about that racism has evolved. I think I would say it may be how communities and societies have started to talk about it, maybe has evolved and devolved and ebbs and flows. But in the United States, from the beginning, Black people, Indigenous people in this land were, um, when they were discussed in constitutions and in bills, were discussed in very unfavorable ways. And so I would say it has become even more clearer just how when we say systemic and institutionalized racism and structural racism, um, if, if anything, it has become increasingly more entrenched. Um, and that's because sometimes not just you have overt racist, but when you have those that are ignorant in power and they're faced with the crisis of there's a justice and a debt that needs to be paid to certain people, it's easier to feign ignorance. You know, one of the things that I've heard a lot, and I know a lot of people of color here, particularly in the United States, mm. um, oh, I, I'll never know what it is to be a Black person. I'll never know what it is to be a woman. I'll never know what it is, you know, and, and sometimes that's used as this, oh, uh, I just, you know, I'll never know what that is and, and really have the experience to change it because I just don't know what it is to be in your space. Um, after January 6th, in which you had large swaths of white men mm -hmm. who had, we'll say comparatively, 15 seconds of discomfort and perceived slight. And they took to not just the streets, but to the United States Capitol and almost burnt that joker to the ground. Yeah. You know what it is. You might not know what it is to be black, but you know what it is to be on a perceived injustice or an actual injustice. And, you know, this is that this begins to debunk this ignorance. That at the end of the day, sometimes some people are scared about information because information leads to accountability. Because what I can't say now is that I did not hear or know this information. And therefore, I have there's a demand on me to act with the information that I was given. And so we have sometimes some people who willfully sit on the sidelines and feign ignorance because the price of uh, accountability, which is demanding action, is too high for their system of status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that definitely. And and do you feel in that obviously same thing? Because you, you know you mentioned obviously that the march on Capitol Hill and this kind of move, um, often brought about by you know far right narratives and and, and organizations, um, and it seems to be that they might, you know, the numbers may not necessarily be growing to the extent that they they seem they they seem online, for example. Um, but their voice is definitely growing to an extent. Um, and do you feel like it's a almost like a counterculture? And what, what I mean by that is, you know, and, and there's this this joke that I remember seeing once, which I think is incredibly accurate, that, you know, if you used to have 100% of the power, but now you've only got 90%, you've still got a, a, an incredible amount of privilege. But that 
10% loss is still going to feel like an injustice to you. Whether, you know, you've still got the majority of the power, but you you used to have all of it. That's still going to feel like a shift that's unfair mm-hmm. to you because you're used to having it all. Um, so I wonder how much of that is kind of pushing this, this almost like far right counter reactionary to movements like Black Lives Matter and, and movements, you know, towards, um, you know, power sharing and equity almost because there's that perception that people are demanding equality, but equality feels unfair to people that have had all the power for so long. Yeah, I think in one space, yes, it is partially driving some of this. But I think we also need to take a step back um, centuries of centuries uh, ago to, you know, even sometimes before the founding of America Mm. to understand this best. Race is a social construct. to, To put that more simply, the ideology, the system of race and therefore racism was something we society built. Yeah, we invented it to, it, well, specifically we to make, to dehumanize people. And so what ends up happening is we, we build that, right? And those that are in power leverage that against um, those that were on the other side of that disproportionate, you know, that unfortunate, what we would call ra- racial space. But it also means that those systems that were built of power were built again for the furtherance of one particular race. So my point in this is that in the United States and even abroad, racism isn't the home of one particular party, political party. Um, Racism and even its furtherance, unintentionally or intentionally, can be passed on by those of multiple and different parties because it is a social construct. Uh, it was, you know, something that all you had to be was human. And in this case, in this world, human and white <laughs> to be able, you know, to 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 uh, put forth these things. And so, yes, to your extent. And I think sometimes what is not clearly seen by those who are not in power and who are hurt by these systems is the fact that, to your point, those that are in the one percent slight shifts are actually translated to them as my whole world is just the beginning of the end for me. So they're fighting for blood the same way we're fighting for blood. Sometimes we come from this perception of, oh, but it's only a few dollars for you. And I'm not justifying that. What I'm saying and my main point is we think that they perceive that they have less at stake and it's only about a, a few dollars for them. No, no, they're coming and there's nothing that they would be willing to not do because for them, it's a whole change that in their mind could lead to, this could be the extinction of X, all these yeah. So that needs to be brought to bear as we engage in this difficult deconstructing of racist structures. The idea that race is a socially created construct rather than something biological is not particularly new or groundbreaking. There is no gene cluster common to all white people or to Asians or to any other racial group for that matter. Not everyone, however, is willing to accept that race is socially created 
and that has obvious social and political repercussions. How does cognitive bias determine our responses to to other people in the context of, of, say, race and racism? Cognitive biases play a big role, mostly because our cognitive biases generally are meant to do two things. They're meant to make our lives easier and they're meant to make us feel better about ourselves. So with regard to making our lives easier, it takes a lot of cognitive power to analyze logically every problem that comes your way or to get to know each individual that you meet and to make decisions based on individual factors. So stereotyping is a lot easier just for our heads Um, and especially for people who have a high intolerance for uncertainty. They do not like the, you know, the lack of an expectation. So it makes more sense for them um, to expect, to base their expectations around stereotypes, around prejudices, because that just kind of lessens their mental load. Um, And it's something that we do kind of all the time with other things. Um, When we, you know, just when we make estimations about anything, um, we're using cognitive biases, but these are with, when it comes to racism, it's an expectation about people and their individual people and individual people's behaviors. Um, and then the other part of those biases are biases that are made to make us feel better. And we have a bias that means that we want to protect our self-esteem. So we tend to, you know, this is kind of off the topic of racism, but we tend to attribute other people's bad behavior to innate qualities that if somebody cuts you off on the road they are a rude evil person but we tend to attribute our own bad behaviors as situational so if I cut somebody else on the road it's because I'm you know I'm really in a rush and I'm late for work but I would never give that grace to somebody else so we use those biases to protect ourselves but we also have our social identities so our self-esteem that's based on our groups And so that's where the in-group bias and out-group prejudice comes around is that we want to protect the reputation of our groups, whether it's our religious group, our national group, our, you know, however we identify. And so we'll attribute the same thing to our groups that if one white person does something bad, you know, this is where we come into attributions for mass shooters if one white person does something bad, it's not because he's white, it's because he's mentally ill, it's because of the situation, it's because of all of these other things. But if somebody outside of my group does something bad, then it makes more sense for me in order to preserve my sense of self to say it's because he's black that he did this violent thing because black people are violent would be the way that somebody would make that attribution because it pushes the boundary away that that is something that is a characteristic of people who are not like me and people who are like me would never do something like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's almost like too close to home right like you you're seeing someone that looks like you commit such a horrific act um yeah. so you almost think well that i could never do something like that and therefore he could never do something like that he could never do something like that or he could never do something like that if he was truly like me And so there must be something wrong with that person. 
Hence the mental health. Or, or, Hence the mental health or, you know, the veneration of other shooters, whether you're in a violent extremist group or not, that there are certainly people who are seen as vigilantes, um, that I can interpret that as that person as being a hero rather than being a criminal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm curious, I guess this is why um you have as you say you know in, in terms of acts of violence um often non-white uh you know extremists that commit an act of violence are referred to as terrorists quite almost instantly um whereas there's been up until i'd say fairly recently um an almost complete denial of the fact that that white nationalism and white nationalist terrorism even exists um, and it was always attributed, as you as you were saying, you know, lone gunman, someone that is mentally ill, which is probably true as well. Um, I'm sure there is, there is there is there is a mental health issue there for all of the for all of these cases, regardless of race. Um, but you know, none of these people ever act alone. That's just a fallacy, in my view. Um, they don't act alone. Um, they have a community that supports them, but also their mental health issues are generally, you know, things like loneliness and depression, um, it's actually, you know, it's pretty dangerous to say um, they did this because they're mentally ill, because people with real psychological disorders, and not that depression isn't real psychological disorders, but people with intense psychological Mm -hmm. disorders are much more likely to be victims of crimes than to commit crimes. And so the blame of a mass shooting on mental health um, then expands another stereotype of mentally ill people as being violent, which they're not. Right. No, that's interesting. And it, and it, and again, this kind of like mislabeling or, or lack of labeling then then you know creates this this false narrative that there's only certain groups or certain religions that have these kind of violent acts. When in reality, it's it's just not true. It's just we label one group. Um, one thing because it's convenient and they're not a part of us and we label another group that looks more like us as something else because it makes us um, as you say it makes us feel better and and what is this um, would you say that this kind of transcends into to the police force in, in the United States because you have um, sometimes this this kind of narrative of um, you know we've had several examples um, in the press video evidence of of um, uh, police using excessive force, which ends up in the death of someone they were trying to take into custody. Um, and, you know, quickly online, you can see, oh, well, the person shouldn't have been struggling or the person was probably doing this on off camera or, you know, these kind of like excuses made for, um, you know, overuse of violence, frankly, and just abuse of power. Yeah, there's, goes both ways. First to blame the victim of the brutality on, you know, assuming that they must have been doing something wrong, even with the, you know, you would think that the videos would maybe poke a hole in that, but sometimes they don't. Um, But also, if the video clearly shows that the victim wasn't doing something wrong, then to paint the perpetrator as an anomaly, to -hmm. say that this cop was one bad apple, which again, for, yeah, it's the rest of the phrase, which is that the one bad apple spoils the barrel, but 
to say, but to say that this person who is like me is not actually like me. Um, that this police officer who did this terrible thing to a clearly innocent person must have been an anomaly. Um, mm. If I can't blame it on the victim. It's interesting because obviously this, and you're quite right, you know, if you see the, 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 the size of the protests, um, regarding BLM and just 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 the, just the fact of how many conversations are happening both both on and offline around this there's <clears throat> evidence to suggest that the, you know there is potential movement there um there is the issue that this isn't a new conversation like we've you know communities have been saying that this has been an issue for years um but the fact that it's required video evidence kind of highlights the other issue, issue that that community just wasn't believed and that kind of pokes a hole, I guess, in that, that kind of social contract. Yeah, that it requires the video evidence, that it requires white people's involvement for politicians to try to take action too, is, you know, again, highlighting that when just black people were protesting, it was dismissed and that it's now that white people are involved. Um, when there was some protests and there was a wall of moms um, and people were lauding this group of kind of suburban white women who were protecting black protesters from the police, which was obviously great. But people were pointing out and saying, hey, I'm sure there were quite a few moms in the crowd before. They just weren't your image of a sweet suburban white mom. And so you didn't have sympathy for them yet. And how is racial bias used by white extremist groups to discredit movements like BLM, Black Lives Matter, for example. Well, their, you know, their go-to would be, you know, their go-to publicly mm -hmm. um, would be to say that, you know, this is a, a racist group because we don't have racism in the U.S. Everybody is equal. We're, co we're supposed to be colorblind. And this group is saying that one group should get preferential treatment over another. So that's one way. Mm -hmm. Another way would be to point out the you know, to say, to scare people, to say that these are violent people, because if you already have an underlying stereotype of Black people as being violent, which I think underlies a lot of this police brutality is that, you know, the perception of, of threat. And so then if you say, if you believe that Black people are inherently violent as they do, um, then even a nonviolent peaceful march is perceived as a violent horde coming towards you to overthrow everything that you've ever known. And so that unknown um, is a big way of discrediting it. Also, you know, saying that they're Antifa or that, you know, doing the classic George Soros is organizing the whole thing um, ways, I, that would be kind of how they would get to their, you know, underlying members. Um, but to the broad society, definitely to portray this as a violent threat to the current system, um, to the system that you know, the system that has worked for you, that's their way to do it. The Black Lives Matter protests sparked a global movement with statues of slave owners being torn down from Bristol to Virginia, anti-police protesters taking the knee from Tokyo to Rome, and discussions amongst elected public officials in the United States on whether to defund 
or rebuild their police forces from the ground. Still, the march towards racial equity is long and winding, especially in a country like the United States, where the country was literally and figuratively built off the backs of black Americans. I would argue that Trump was, it wasn't a fluke. The 2016 election was not stolen. And we need to acknowledge that. This was a willful decision by, at that point, vast majority of those who decided to go out and vote who believed that he should be the leader of this country. That was a direct backlash of having a Black man in the White House. And what that visibly represented what that symbolically could represent what that could bring to bear in the future so we're vacillating always between making progress and then having to go back and in part that all stems with the fact that race is a social construct and when each individual is faced with those inequities just not unlike Mateo when you and I are faced with the realities of not being a woman and the gender dynamics that are there, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And the more that we decide we want to push off the real conversation and really roll up our sleeves and grapple with this thing, and we choose to instead feign ignorance, that gets us in this circular cyclical motion that is unfortunately uh, bringing to bear not just mental oppression, but literally physical death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and, certain you communities. Know. No, hundred percent, and you can. I mean, you can see it. Um, on on, and that's the probably the one. Um, I mean, you know, there's many, there's many positives to technology. I'd say, but the kind of one big one was the fact that you, you know, nobody can deny that you know, death is a is is a byproduct of, um, of ignorance of of willful ignorance and um of 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 this kind of oppression, and and it's there to see, um. It's sad that we needed video evidence for for a, a greater part of the community in America to be actually heard and listened to, which which again highlights a whole different conversation about trust and the kind of social conversation that that different groups in society are having. The fact that you need to have a smartphone with a camera to be believed um, that in itself speaks volumes. Um, as you said, you know, having um, Barack Obama and then. Donald Trump kind of back to back again I think that probably says more than than anything in terms of like what you know how how, how one can flip so much and as you say yep. the kind of like the exact not the exact the um the reaction that that people had to having um Obama in, in the White House um and and on that point you know what role do you think if any conspiracy theories like QAnon, for example, um, what role do you think they've played in in fueling this this sentiment across across America? Do you think it do you think it has any major role? Do you think it was more of a byproduct of what's been going on, or do you think it's actively fueling more aggression and more division? So it is actively fueling division, and and mind you, what we see is often um, just like racism was not a inherent product of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. We had uh, slavery 
right in many of its forms before the United States was was no the <laughs> British Empire did it way before the uh... <laughs> exactly however there was a unique brand with mm. which the United States brought a barbaric and very uh intersectional sense to this slavery and then passed off the baton to, to racism um and so I say that to say that you know even when we think about these conspiracy theories just like the U.S. is sometimes the exporter of these good and not so good systems, they do track and take hold in UK and right in, oh, in yeah, other 100%. spaces because what gives the these conspiracy theories rise is that people will either feign ignorance or the other convenient thing is they will pick up uh lie quicker than they will pick up the truth because you don't have to wrestle with it it's less of a tax right it's less of a burden uh that you have to wrestle with and so it's 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 easily made it's it's ready baked uh it's not unlike what you know the struggles with brexit um and the struggles of trump right people would rather believe this this narrative of scapegoating which is always the lowest hanging fruit never going to really solve the problem but what it buys them is i don't have to wrestle with this uncomfortable feeling today mm -hmm. and i don't have to wrestle with that uncomfortable feeling tomorrow and then the next day i'm gonna continue to hold on to these other ideals as ways to scapegoat so it absolutely fuels mm -hmm. it absolutely fuels that that rise and i think that that's why <clears throat> we have to do a better job of uh very much shifting the onus of accountability where it matters uh it's not enough to say you know i i believe that trump was actually not the problem he was the symptom in the united states which means again we need to have some real conversations in our communities on why some of us feel comfortable throwing others of us under the bus at the ballot box mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and, and i think that's a, that's a conversation that to be honest i think democracies across the globe need to have um, yeah. various different symptoms, various different problems, um, all unique. But at the end of the day, it's, there is a, you know, what politics you see in the front line is, is a byproduct of, of, of a kind of wider problematic discussion going on in society. Um, as you say, I really think the, 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 problem is, is, is the political situation that that's often just the, just the kind of the more obvious, um, effect of it rather yeah. than the actual the actual core problem um and, and and it's interesting because if you you know you're talking about obviously you know self-preservation and 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 how you know how powerful it is in fueling and if you look at a conspiracy theory like for example the the great replacement theory you know which is the complete false narrative that um, white people are being actively replaced um you know it it, it perfectly um picks up this idea of preservation because it, it suggests that it's white people that are actually under attack and it suggests that there is a conspiracy to to wipe them out and again that whole narrative of, of preservation is incredibly powerful um, yeah and you know that leads to an emotional discussion um you know it ta tags into all sorts of inherent biases that that people have um and it's and it's a very very powerful tool and we've seen it um, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. in in how devastating it can be. Yep, yep. It's 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 how even as you know, I'm thinking about this new push, even that the Biden administration and others have said 
on the heels of, of dealing with and grappling with this pandemic, this whole thing of we believe science. And don't get me wrong, we should, right? We should believe the facts and the data. But often what got us here was the willful ignoring of data to build the current systems that we have. <laughs> and so, you know, it's the, it's the uh, on and off love affair that human beings have with science when it comports with them and then we distance and divorce ourselves from it when it doesn't comport with what I want under the measurement of self-preservation. Yeah, essentially. And it's and it's again going back to that idea of an of inherent bias, isn't it? That you know you're you're more likely to believe in a fact or a statistic if it if it adheres to to, to you know to what you want to to believe to be true. So often, you know, if you're if you're, I don't know, a staunch meat eater, right? You're you're gonna you're gonna look at some stat that says that meat eating is amazing and, and veganism isn't a real diet, and you're gonna right. hold that data to your heart and be like, this is true, one hundred percent. Share it with all right. your vegan friends because you're spiteful. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a silly example, but that's the point. We we almost compartmentalize and be like, actually, you know, this data is right because I want this thing to be true. In the same way that if you're taking it to something more more sinister, you know, if you if you if you want to be, if you want to see yourself as a white male still in power, if you if you want to keep the status quo, you're gonna to want to believe um, that you know there is a conspiracy against against your people. You're gonna to want to believe that um, you know BLM are actually just trying to power grab for for a portion of society instead of actually fight for equality because that's in- uncomfortable and it doesn't fit the narrative that you want to keep. That's um, right. And it's breaking right. that down and breaking down those biases that are paramount i think to to this change that's right and and i would say you know there's something you said earlier that that is the fight that we have been doing now for um proud to say for 10 years for for a little over a decade is fighting for that right to be believed the first time without validators mm-hmm. right that that at the point that someone says this is a problem we we never needed the truth is we have never needed video footage to be able to prove this stuff that has always happened. It's that the power of that video footage is, it robs the broader facets of society of being able to run to those cleaves of ignorance and therefore deny folks of the justice that they deserve. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we need to be pushing towards a world. And so what the Daniel Initiative does, you know, we we say whether our clients and some of our clients are individuals and influencers and others of our organizations and corporations, we help them manage and steward their social and political capital to transform cultures. You know, we're about that transformational life. Uh, Reform is is something particularly in the in the United States that is antiquated. It is outdated. It does not fit the need. Um, and the build of what the larger pockets of society in the United States need in the furtherance of equity, right? Which is that equal access to power. And so uh, we, we fight hard to make sure that while we do good policy, that we're equipping folks to be able to communicate strategically, right? So that we move to a space that there is no need of but let me check with some other people about your experience to see if that was actually true. At the point it was said, it should have been believed because it was experienced by that person. Right. Right. And that, and that's, um, it's changing that kind of narrative of the conversation and, and making sure that everyone's on an equal footing in, in, in the idea of being believed as in, 
a white man's word and a black man's word are meant to be equal in the sense of like you hold the same weight. You yep. shouldn't have to have um, technological evidence to to say this is this is an issue. Um, and and just finally, if I may, what what change would you like to see going forward? If there was kind of like one major shift be it in the way we're we're dealing with um conspiracy theories to the kind of wider conversation about about equity will be the kind of one major change that you think would be the thing if there was anything that one thing that you'd love to see going forward yeah what i'd love to see going forward is transformation across you know the governmental spectrums in the across the globe not just the united states across corporations in leadership, right? Uh, th this means how are we giving true agency and rebuilding and making space for younger voices, for uh, black and brown and and Asian, you know, and uh, persons with disabilities and LGBTQ, you know, I, uh, plus. Um, I think that it is it's the major change we want to see at the Daniel Initiative is their stake in the policy space. Mm -hmm. And the reason we would say that that is major is because policy is simply ideals enshrined on paper that become law and have long sustaining weight. And so if we shift the way that people have access to policy and the ability to craft that policy that is helpful, it will have a ripple effect like, you know, we can't because it's a social construct race is just like sexism and it's inherently an ideology. I don't believe you'll be able to eradicate it totally because you will have some people that still retain it in their hearts and minds. But there is a way that you could build that society that makes them truly the fringes to a point that they can be ignorant and be educated and cured. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. Ignorance can be cured. The, those that are holding on to hardcore racism and sexism, um, to use a, the pandemic terminology, the best thing to do is quarantine them until they can get to a space that <laughs> that ignorance can can be, you know, inoculated with education. Exactly. Um, you know, and so we want to see equity in the policy space um, because we can see its effect and its change long-term in the protection so that it's not just people hurting people. It's one thing when people hurt people mm -hmm. as it's been happening forever, but it's a whole nother heavier, complicated thing when we entrench in policy, a sort of violence that is inflicted upon people, whether it's social, political, or economic violence. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And the one, I guess the one positive about it, about, as you say, race being a social construct is that it is a social construct It's made up. And the beauty of that is that, you know, you get enough people behind that you can make another social construct. That's right. You know, that's, that's right. And that's and that's and that's part of the beauty is that, you know, human beings created this narrative. Um, so there's nothing stopping people from creating competing narratives. Um, yep. All, all we need is courage. All we need really is courage because it, it you know, Courage is what gives you the ability. There are going to be a lot of hard conversations that need to be had. Mm -hmm. um, but that's called life. That's called being, you know, human beings have two different thought processes and opinions. That That's what married folks and dating folks and, and even folks in an office where it's more than one person, we struggle with every day. So let's normalize the fact that courage is needed. 
to be able to navigate these spaces and have real conversation. If we get that, that's at least a step in the right direction of being able to deconstruct most of these systems and build something that truly works for everybody. Rwanda, Germany, and South Africa have reckoned with their troubled and violent past in order to build a better future. In America, George Floyd was pinned under the knee of a white police officer as he said, almost in a whisper, I can't breathe. We as a collective need to examine our prejudices honestly and truthfully. We need to come to terms that you don't need to wear a white hood to be racist. Willful ignorance will get you there. Considering the growth of counter-movements like All Lives Matter, it shows how sensitive and delicate the white community are to honest conversations. Maybe after 400 years, it's time to grow up and take ownership of the past, for the sake of making sure that George Floyd's words don't fall on deaf ears. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.